you have your Bible, take it and turn to Mark chapter 6. Got a rather large passage this morning. We're going to look at verses 14 through 29. As we look at, uh, the sermon title is the, the Passion of the Baptist. And I'm not preaching on what I'm passionate about necessarily. Uh, but the passion, you know, the suffering. If you think about, you know, the, the title, The Passion of the Christ. Um, here we see the death of John the Baptist. The death and suffering and execution of John the Baptist. We're going to start in verse 14 and go all the way through 29. So here now, God's word. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, is raised, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed and yet heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It's God's word for us this morning. Let's go to the author now and ask for his help. Father, thank you um, for this word inspired by the Holy Spirit. God, we need your help this morning. Will you um, help me? Um, equip me, um, empower me to, to preach your word. God, I pray for the congregation that they'll receive your word. God, that anything that comes from me will fall to the floor, but anything that comes from you, God, I pray um, that they'll receive and apply to their lives and, and that it will shape their, their, their minds and their hearts and their lives for you, God. And so we, we come to this text um, and, and we want to submit to it and, and heed it and, and, and learn from it, God, and know it. Um, because we know that um, the word implanted is able to save. Um, so God, we trust in that. Now do the work that you intend to do in your name, Jesus. Amen. Bright, cheery passage, huh, this morning? My, it reminds me of my mamaw. Uh, 
My mama used to love to watch her stories. Do you know what I mean by watching her stories? I think her favorite back in the day, this was a while ago, uh, was Days of, Our, Days of Our Lives. She loved Days of Our Lives. And I remember as a kid growing up, she babysat me a lot. Hated Days of Our Lives. I mean, did not want to watch that show at all. But of course, sometimes there's nothing better to do at Mamaw's house except to sit and watch Days of Our Lives. And the thing I remember about that show was just the, the, the crazy plot lines. You know, it's like one person has a lover who died, and so they get an, another, and then the person who died has come back to life, and, you know, they're all there to get. It's just like crazy stuff happening. And uh, either way, let's not focus on Days of Our Life too much. But what we're studying today kind of feels like a biblical, historical episode of Days of Our Lives. I mean, this is like a soap opera, dramatic crazy stuff going on the only difference is is this story is not days of our lives it's God's word it's breathed out by God profitable for teaching for reproof for correction for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work and so that's why we've come to study the scriptures this morning the scriptures are our standard and our solution and so we've come to um, sit under God's word in this story we have three points I want to talk about um, Herod's conscience Herod's controversy, and then we'll see how Herod's compromised at the end. Let's start point number one, Herod's conscience. See in verse 14, King Herod, let's stop right there. Who is this character, King Herod? It's important to note because there's like four different Herods in the Bible, by the way. Um, there's a lot, and if you speaking of soap operas, just the Herod family in general. If you want to study what's going on with Herod, I mean, the, if you think your family tree is wacky, uh, go, go check out what's going on with, with the Herods. Uh, but this Herod is Herod Antipas, who ruled from um, 4 B.C. to 39 A.D., uh, technically, he, he is not a king. He was a tetrarch. He ruled over Galilee and Perea. You know, when his dad, Herod the Great, died, if you think about, you know, Herod the Great, you read about him in Matthew 2. Uh, when he dies, he passes off his kingdom, um, which was under Rome, of course, to, to, to four of his sons. And so Herod Antipas that we see here was a ruler of just the fourth of the kingdom. Uh, actually, he... Uh, he, he loved to refer to himself as king, even though he wasn't a king. And actually, eventually, later on in history, he gets exiled because he was requesting his higher-up, can I go by the name king? And then he, he actually gets kicked out of office, if, if you will, and gets exiled, and he no longer has power. And so it seems a little ironic for Mark because he keeps calling him king, 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 king. He wasn't even a king, and he got in trouble for referring to himself as a king. Who was Herod? He was um, known for his amazing architecture, being a lover of luxury. We'll see here in this story. And as Jesus called him in Luke thirteen thirty two, a fox. So what did King Herod hear? King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. That's verse 14. What is it? You see that King Herod heard of it. In context, it seems to be the mission trip that we studied of the disciples um, going out on in verses 7 through 13. So the disciples last week, if you weren't here, were sent out on this mission trip two by two. And now, because of all this preaching, all this work going on, multiplied, um, Jesus' name had become known, and news of Jesus' name had reached the 
pinnacle of political power in Palestine. And this leads to a debate about Jesus' identity that we see in verses 14 through 16. It would have been the talk of the town. Who do you say Jesus is? What, what do you think is going on here? How is he doing this? What, what do you think it is? So there's three theories um, given in verses 14 through 15. Theory number one is that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. So John the Baptist wasn't really known for miracles, but you know he, 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 he was mur- murdered, and that's what this story's about. Um, so this is kind of a different timeline, uh, further timeline down the road. Um, he's murdered at this point in time, and it's like he must have been raised from the dead, and now he's doing miracles. Option number two, theory two, was that Jesus, we see this in verse 15, is the resurrected Elijah. Not necessarily resurrected, but has come back. Elijah has come back. You know, this is the Old Testament prophet that we've been reading about in First and Second Kings lately. And this would be a popular theory due to the prophecy of Elijah returning before the Messiah. We've talked about this before, but it's Malachi 4, 5 through 6, if you want to read that. Um, and of course, as we know, um, Jesus identifies John the Baptist as Elijah in Matthew 11. But the third theory here in verse 15, is that Jesus is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Uh, this is either another resurrected prophet, you know, some, some people were pointing to Jeremiah, or that Jesus was just a, a prophet in the, in the line of prophets, if you will. The general consensus we see here in verses 14 through 15 is that Jesus is definitely a prophet. Most think he's a resurrected prophet or a prophet that's come back from the past, no matter how you slice it, all three theories clearly show that people are, are thinking that something supernatural is going on with Jesus. Some incredible explanation must be had to, to describe what's going on in this prophet Jesus Christ. And Herod himself is, a, uh, is convinced of one of the theories we see in verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, there's that phrase again, Herod heard of it. He said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. Here we see the power of a guilty conscience. John the Baptist was murdered at Herod's hand. That's the story we'll see in this passage that we read. And once Herod hears the news about the ministry of Jesus Christ, the power, the teaching, the miracles, the authority, his guilty conscience immediately fills his mind with a superstitious fear that Jesus Christ is actually John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. Herod's thinking, John is back for revenge. Reminds me of Proverbs 28, 1. The wicked flees when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. So what do we learn about the doctrine of man from this, from this, um, this, this happening of Herod where he, he, he hears the story of Jesus and immediately starts to fear, the person I've killed has been raised. We need to be clear that Herod is not a believer in Yahweh, is he? He doesn't have the Holy Spirit, does he? Uh, he? He publicly, as we see in the story, makes a mockery of God's law. Yet when he commits this great sin, his conscience weighs him down. It's pricked. He feels guilty. And this is because all mankind made in the image of God has a conscience. What is the conscience? The conscience is the inner witness within all mankind that bears witness to the individual whether or not they are obeying God's law. So you steal a cookie 
or lie about eating a cookie or slander someone and say they ate the cookie and you feel bad about it. You feel guilty about it. Something eats you up inside. Why? Because the Bible teaches us that God's law is implanted in all of our hearts. So Herod, wicked king, beheads people, right? He, he's not a believer, but he breaks God's law and he, he feels something inside telling him that that's true, that he's guilty. We see this in Romans 2. This is what God's word says. 14 through 16, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So he's saying there that, you know, that there's this something planted within every single human being that either accuses them, says you're doing something wrong according to God's law that's planted, or it excuses them. Because, you know, lost people can do the right thing sometimes, you know. Um, it says, okay, you, 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 did the, you did the right thing. So um, this is one of the most helpful things in evangelism. I want you guys to know this, that people feel guilty for what they've done. Deep down they know they have broken God's law. God's word attests to that. And so we can draw that out and then apply the good news of the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Of course, we had to point out that some people have more tender consciences. You probably know that from experiences. Um, Titus 1.15 says that people can have defiled consciences. So I'm not saying that everybody has the same awareness of God's law. Everybody feels the same amount of guilt, the same amount of you know, worry or something like that. Even in this story, I think you see two different consciences displayed. You see Herod who has committed this act of murder. And so he, you know, he, he jumps out a, a, a fig leaf. He, he's, he's terrified of Jesus because he thinks he's John the Baptist. But then you see Herodias whose conscience... Seems to be a little different. Let's go on to Herod's controversy and read verses 17 through 20. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So in this section we see the controversy that Herod had with John the Baptist that leads to John the Baptist losing his life. Do you remember John? We talked about him in the very first sermon in this series. Um, you can go back and listen to it. Mark 1, 1 through 8. John was the prophesied forerunner to the Messiah. He came before Jesus to prepare people's hearts for Jesus' message. He was a wild outdoorsman. Clothed in camel's hair, eating locusts. Who preached with fiery prophetic boldness. We saw an example of that in his preaching in Matthew 3, if you're, if you're reading in our Bible plan. Uh, this is John, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, that's the religious leaders of the day, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus, I mean, John is this brimstone preacher you hear that i mean calling people out and he's not just bold towards the religious elites like the pharisees and sadducees in matthew 3 but he's also bold towards the political elites we see in this story we could call john an equal 
opportunity offender. He'll offend anybody. And that's what we see in verses 17 through 18. So Herod, okay, here's the, here's the story, here's the background to this showdown between John the Baptist and Herod. Herod, that fox, as Jesus referred to him as, convinced Herodias to divorce his brother. So Herodias is married to Herod's brother Philip, and so Herod convinces Herodias, get a divorce, and I'm going to get a divorce, and then we can marry each other. So he married his own brother's wife. This is against the law of God, if you couldn't guess. Um, in Leviticus 18.16, we see that. So John sees this situation where an unbelieving king was breaking the law of God, and John the Baptist was not going to let it slide. John the Baptist was a prophet of the living God, and he was going to call out sin wherever he saw it, no matter what the circumstances may have been, or what the consequences may have been. So in fiery prophetic boldness, we see in verse 18, here's the message to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Today, um, we may be tempted to say, well, he's not a believer, so God's word is irrelevant to him. Or, or we might be tempted to say, there's no way that he would ever actually listen, so what's the point? Or we might be tempted to say, the potential cost is way too high, so let's just not take the risk. Couldn't you see yourself saying any of those things in this situation? John didn't say those things. He saw sin, and he called sin, sin. The king's sinning, the king needs to be called out. He wasn't worried about paying the price. He wasn't worried about what might happen. John the Baptist was concerned with his duty, and he let God be concerned with the results. It reminds me of one of my seminary professors who said, a man of conviction doesn't fear consequences. That's what we see in John the Baptist. He was a man of conviction. He believed God's word. He was a prophet of God. And so he saw some that needed to be called out. He called it out. He didn't worry about the consequences. Notice John's persistence even in verse 17. For John had been saying. This wasn't, he just, he wasn't like he, he said it once. And then, okay, I've said it once. I'm going to move on. But it was a constant you know, it was, it was probably very annoying to Herod, especially Herodias, as we'll see, to say over and over and over again, you're breaking God's law, what you're doing is not right, you are living in sin. And believe it or not, sometimes persistent, fiery, prophetic boldness doesn't sit well with everyone, <laughs> okay? And specifically, Herodias, look at verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. We see the same thing in verse 17 where he's in prison. Why? For the sake of Herodias. Herodias wanted Herod to put John the Baptist to death, but Herod wouldn't do it. Why? Verse 20, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. Here you see some irony, do you not? John is this poor Weak man in prison. Herod is this rich, powerful man on the throne. But Herod is the one afraid of John. Why? Because he knows that John is a righteous and holy man. Herod knows that John is from God. Herod knows that John is correct in calling him out on his sin. Remember that guilty conscience? His conscience would be testifying. You know he's right. Herod knows that John has done nothing wrong. 
We know that Herod is right in his estimation of John being a righteous and holy man because here's what Jesus said about John in Matthew 11, 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a holy and righteous man. And isn't that a great example for us to follow that he lived such a righteous and holy life that even his enemies recognized it? He lived such a righteous and holy life that it made his enemies fearful. So in this story, we see Herod is obviously torn. On the one hand, Herod has John in prison. On the other hand, he knows that John is a righteous and holy man. You see that, that, that on-the-fence nature of this? Look at, look at the end of verse 20. When he heard him, on one hand, he was greatly perplexed, but on the other hand, he heard him gladly. We see Herod is kind of dabbling in John the Baptist. He, he's interested in what John has to say, but he won't repent. He's on the fence. He's dabbling in religion, if you will. But being mildly interested in what John has to say is not a great place to be. It's actually a dangerous place to be. Just like um, being mildly interested in the things of God is, is not a great place to be. It's a dangerous place to be. James 1, 6-8, we read it earlier. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. This, 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 these two, three verses reminds me of Herod in this passage, where he is tossed by the wind. You'll see that even as we go into the story, where he, he's not a man of conviction. He, he's not a man who believes in anything. He, he's not a man who's going to stand his ground, but he's, he's constantly pushed. He's constantly tossed by the wind. He won't make up his mind. He's perplexed. He's interested. He, he, he does this, but he wants to do that. That's the kind of man that Herod is. He's tossed by the wind. And we see that in our last point, Herod's compromised. Verse 21, an opportunity came. No doubt, this opportunity is for the schemes of Herodias. She wanted John the Baptist dead, but was getting stonewalled on that, and so she was having to wait for the right opportunity. And here it was. It was Herod's birthday. He's throwing a party with all the pomp and circumstances that you could possibly think of. I think about like a party at the Capitol in the Hunger Games, okay? It's just like all this festive over-the-top stuff. The nobles are there. This is verse 21. The, the military commanders, the leading men of Galilee, they're all there to celebrate Herod's birthday. In comes Herodias' daughter in verse 22, and she performs a dance. She, she had to be pretty young. You have to guess in, in her teenage years, so she performs this dance. I want to be clear, this is Herodias' daughter, so um, Herod in this story would be her um, stepfather. Okay, so, so his stepdaughter comes in, she performs a dance. There's nothing said about this dance, it leaves it to the imagination. I think it's pretty safe to say it was pretty provocative. And it pleased Herod and his guests in verse 22. So much so that King Herod makes an extravagant offer, verse 22. He says, ask for me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And then he amplifies that in verse 23 through uh, repetition. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Who knows what's behind this offer? It, it very well could have been drunkenness. It very well could have been lust. It very well could have been pride. 
No doubt it was sinful, and no matter what it was, it's a foolish vow. Is it not? He, he, he makes a foolish vow here. It reminds me of Jephthah in Judges 11 when he makes this foolish vow um, that leads to him having to sacrifice his only daughter as a burnt offering, if you're familiar with that story. And in that story at the end, Judges 11:35, he says, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. We will see that Herod has a similar reaction to Jephthah, where he, he, he quickly says something, he promises something, and then he regrets it. So, a great application here I want to give is be careful what you say. Be careful what you promise. Think about James 1 to be, be slow to speak, quick to listen. Don't, don't be quick to make promises if you're not going to follow through on them. Don't be quick to make promises that you might quickly regret in a single moment. Ecclesiastes 5, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should, you, um, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. He makes a foolish vow. He says, up to half of my kingdom. Which, by the way, uh, he couldn't actually give up to half of his kingdom. He didn't have that authority because he wasn't actually a king. He was a tetrarch under authority. Um, so this was just um, an exaggeration from Herod. He's, he's over-promising maybe to look good in front of his guests. So the daughter goes back out to her mother and says, For what should I ask in verse 24? And here's Herodias' moment. She says, The head of John the Baptist. And so um, the, the girl immediately, with haste, rushes in, says, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. It seems like the daughter with a twisted, sick sense of humor. I mean, you see what kind of family she's grown up in adds the platter part. Okay, that was just her addition to this request I want it on a platter and immediately uh, we see in verse 26 the king was exceedingly sorry but because of his oaths and his guests he did not want to break his word to her so again we see Herod tossed by the wind do we not on the one hand he doesn't want to murder John the Baptist but on the other hand he doesn't want to look bad in front of his guests and notice the reason he doesn't break his promise. It had nothing to do with fearing God. He didn't say, well, I made this vow and I fear God. I'm going to be a man of my word. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what? I fear God, so I'm not going to murder a righteous and holy man. No, he doesn't say that. It says, well, because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word. So if this promise had been made in private, we, we could have guessed that it would have been broken. He would have easily slipped out. Remember, he's not a man of conviction. But it was a public blunder. He had pride. He didn't want to look bad in front of his friends at his own birthday party. And so you know what you do if you don't want to ruin a birthday party? You chop a man's head off. And that's what we see here. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother 
again, we see Herod's tossed by the wind, tossed by John, tossed by Herodias, tossed by a young dancing girl, tossed by his rich friends. He wasn't a man of conviction like John the Baptist. No, he was compromised. He was a man of compromised integrity. So with that said, do you, do you feel how unfair this story feels? Consider it. One of the greatest men to ever live, righteous and holy, standing on the word of God, used so greatly for the kingdom, literally the forerunner of the Messiah. And how does his life end? Beheaded at a birthday. It feels so random, does it not? It feels so unjust. Notice in the story, once it, once it gets to the actual story of his death, John doesn't even say a word. He silently suffers in prison, and then his head gets cut off. Do you think John knew the reason for his death? Do you think that John knew that a teenage girl danced and seduced her stepfather, the king, and that's the reason why he was having to die? That was the end of his story? And in contrast, the compromised Herod, tossed by the wind, is being celebrated for his birthday, full of pomp and circumstances and luxury and comfort. This story debunks the false doctrine that a righteous life leads to a comfortable life free of suffering. Does it not? I mean, who, who is more righteous and holy than John the Baptist outside of Jesus Christ himself? And look how his life ends. And it's so dangerous to believe this. You know, it's so easy to believe, oh, if I'm good, then good things will happen to me. If I'm righteous, nothing will ever go wrong. If I follow after God, I'm going to be rewarded for it in this life. It's easy to think that, but believing that leads to our faith breaking because eventually we're going to be following God and something horrific is going to happen to us. So heed the lesson of this story. John was righteous and holy, lived his life to honor God, and that led him getting his head placed on a platter. And remember the context of this story of John the Baptist and Mark. This is the meat of a Mark and sandwich. Before this story, we see the disciples being sent on a mission trip. After this story, in verse 30, we see the, the apostles returning to Jesus and telling him all they had done and taught. And placed in the middle of this sending of the disciples on their mission trip, we have this story of the most popular disciple of Christ, you could say, getting brutally and randomly and unjustly murdered. So what does that say about the disciples? This is what we should expect. As we, as we read last week, 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, look at verse 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. It feels wrong, but this is the end of John the Baptist. He was a great man, but at the end of the day, John the Baptist was a man. And so his story in verse 29 is finished. And as we walk away from this story, I want us all to see really clearly and have it firmly placed in our minds that following Jesus may literally cost you your life. Following Jesus may cost you everything. And to be a follower of Christ means to be willing to make that trade. So I want to ask you, are you willing to make that trade? You know, Jesus said in Matthew 10, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's Matthew 10, 37-39. So to follow Jesus means to value Jesus over everything, including your own life. And in this passage we see John lose his life. And it felt random and evil and unjust. And so I want to ask... Was it worth it? John losing his life in this story, was it worth it? Think about the promise of Christ we read this week in our Bible reading plan, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. It says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, it is worth it. But when is it going to be worth it? Delayed gratification in the kingdom of heaven. Your reward's going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. So rejoice when you get persecuted because it's worth it. I think about this quote from J.C. Ryle. The true Christian's best things are yet to come. His rest, his crown, his wages, his reward are all on the other side of the grave. Here in this world, he must walk by faith and not by sight. And if he looks for the praise of man, he will be disappointed. Here in this life, he must sow and labor and fight and endure persecution. And if he expects a great earthly reward, he expects what he will not find. But this life is not all. There is to be a day of retribution. There is a glorious harvest yet to come. Heaven will make amends for all. Eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard the glorious things that God has laid up for all that love Him. The value of real religion is not to be measured by the things seen, but the things unseen. If you measure this story by what you can see, it was not worth it for John the Baptist. He was righteous and holy. All he did was lose his head. But if you measure it by what was unseen you see the unspeakable joy and gifts and grace that he's going to get in the kingdom of heaven for following after Jesus Christ but this story should remind you also of someone else let's consider John was a righteous man a holy man who kept silent while he was unjustly put to death by a reluctant political leader after his death his disciples took his body and laid it in a tomb. That story sound familiar to anybody? Remember that John was the forerunner of Christ? He came to prepare the way for Christ, but what we see is not just he didn't prepare the way for Christ's ministry, but also we see in this passage that he prepared the way for Christ's death, the passion of the Baptist. We see that Jesus was also a perfectly righteous and holy man. 1 Peter 2.22 says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. We also see that Jesus was silent during his judgment. 1 Peter 2.23 says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We see that Jesus was also, as you know, unjustly put to death. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We see that Jesus was also put to death by a reluctant political leader. Mark 15, 14 through 16, Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? 
But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus' body was also laid in a tomb by his disciples. Mark 15, 46, And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. You see that? These, these stories mirror each other perfectly. But there's one difference. Jesus didn't stay in his tomb. An angel reports it in Mark 16, 6. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they have laid him. So death is the end of John the Baptist, but it was not the end of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is alive today, resurrected from the dead. And since Jesus is alive, we have hope today. The Bible tells us, very clearly that our lives may very well end randomly and unjustly like John the Baptist. There's no promise that it won't happen to us. We shouldn't be surprised it happened to John the Baptist. It happened to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But since our Lord Jesus has died and then come back from the grave, we have a hope that goes beyond it. Do you have this hope in life and death this morning? It can only be found in Jesus Christ. Look to him this morning. Jesus, thank you for your word. God, it's bleak, it's hard. God, I pray that it gives us a sober understanding of this life in this sinful world. But God, at the same time, I pray that we have great hope, not in John the Baptist, not in our own righteousness, not in our own holiness, not in our own works, that we have a great hope in you, Jesus Christ, that you have lived, died, and lived again. You are alive forevermore, and because of that, we have hope in this life. And we look to you, and we look to our reward in heaven. And God, I pray that we can be men of conviction and women of conviction who aren't tossed by the wind like Herod. But God, I pray that we can stand upon your word like John the Baptist. Holy Spirit, make it so in our hearts. In your name, Jesus. Amen.